it took me some time to be like, well, I'm going to, you know, write down like five of the top things I'm thinking about. What can I support with the evidence? Like, what is actually worth saying? How can I sort of form this into a column? And like, is what I'm saying about this helpful in any way? This week, we talked to a writer whose job it is to examine the big thoughts that impact our daily lives. I'm Michael O'Connell. You're listening to It's All Journalism. Today in the studio with me is Christine Emba. She's an editor and columnist for The Washington Post, where she writes about ideas for the opinion section. And actually, the, it's In Theory is your your column, I guess. Yes. Well, In Theory is the blog that I launched when I first came to The Post, which has kind of morphed into my column at this point. Okay. Well, uh, well let's talk about that, your, your sort of journalist journey. How did you end up in your position here at The Post? Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> it has been a journey, in fact, because I didn't really mean to end up as a journalist. So in college, I studied like international relations and politics and sort of thought that I was going to go into like the UN world or perhaps business. And I actually was a consultant for the first two years out of college. And then I realized that I didn't really care about selling software or consulting generally, but I did care about writing and editing. And I had been doing some freelancing and editing for friends who wrote things. And I saw a job opening at the Economist Intelligence Unit, actually, and just decided maybe I should take a leap. You know, this this sounds interesting. It combines intelligence and smart ideas with editing, which is a thing I really enjoy doing and think I'm pretty good at. So I applied and I might be like the last one of the last people in this business who I think just applied to a job opening on a website and ended up with a job. <laughs> um But yeah, I worked there for about two years, and then I took a fellowship at the New Criterion, which is like a small arts and culture mag in New York. And then from there, I was hired to the Washington Post. Your description on the Post is to say you write about ideas. I think all journalists, to an extent, write about ideas. What makes what you do different? (laughs) Yeah, there's, there's often a little bit of confusion about what I do. Also, the blog name, whenever I send out emails, they often say, Christine Emba, editor, comma, in theory. People are like, so are you an editor or are you not an editor? There seems um, to be a lot of uncertainty around <laughs> your, your career and your, your your path here. Yeah, very nebulous, just the whole idea idea gambit. No, but I guess when I say I write about ideas, it's to differentiate, I think, from what a lot of political writing, and especially in Washington, D.C., frankly, is, you know, about horse race politics or this party is doing this or this representative is doing that. I really am interested in bringing forward and bringing into discussion ideas that I think are are happening or being discussed perhaps outside of the mainstream or maybe even below the surface, but that I think will actually have an effect and are having an effect on the public discourse and how we act in our society and how we live in the world. So it's less talking about, you know, what did Paul Ryan do today? But like, how does this theory that certain people have been talking about influence the way that we're thinking about this policy that Paul Ryan is championing? So I found out about your writing for actually fairly recently, like in the last couple of months, and I've seen your, your byline for a while. So in the last week or so, this is uh, a few days after uh, the events in, in Charlottesville, uh, I saw a couple of your recent columns, and I and I really wanted to get you in here, not necessarily specifically to talk about those, but to talk about the the idea of this type of journalism, doing this type of opinion writing. You know, you you comment about uh, 
sort of the political coverage this in DC and, and you're you're right that a lot of it is very much the horse race of of politics you know what does the left say what does the right say but you know, the fact is a lot of these issues have real big impacts on on the way people live and so it's nice to see somebody writing about something that has a degree of weight to it and sort of examines the impact of just you know these this horse race as it were Yeah. I mean, I try to do that. And I will say that I often do still dip into kind of that sort of horse race political writing or just commenting on, you know, what Donald Trump has said or what people on his staff has said, because that's important, too. But sort of thinking about the underlying themes and what is either going to be important or is important. I think another thing that I I find really valuable and try to do is explaining. So even if it's something that's being talked about, or like a word that's being thrown around, you know, like what what exactly is it and what makes it matter to people? So, you know, we talk about cultural appropriation. That's like a term that's out there often or intersectionality or even like white privilege. And what is it? What does that mean? How can I explain that to people so they understand why we're talking about it and why it's relevant to their lives? It's sometimes difficult to you know, understand what the 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 abstract, what the what the reality behind it is, and so again, this is that's why I think it's really great that you're writing this type of stuff. Where do you get your ideas? I mean, do you have like kind of like an itch that you something that you you're out there and you see, and, and suddenly you're like, you know, yeah, I think I want to you know expand it. What does this mean? I mean, how do you how do you find those ideas? Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly. My best ideas, I think, or my best pieces come from just questions that I have. If I find that I'm turning something over in my mind or thinking about something a lot or when I talk to people, it's something that comes up often in conversation, then it's kind of like, oh, maybe there's like something there that needs to be explained or that like if I unspool this thought that I have or this conversation I've constantly been having with people, maybe it has relevance to our larger community. But then, of course, like sometimes I'm in between big conversations with people. So I read a lot um, <laughs> and also try to read, I think, from a wide range of sources. So not just, you know, like newspapers or even magazines, but, you know, different magazines, cultural stuff, but also like religious quarterlies or like even a Marxist quarterly. Find out what academics are talking about in the academy, because that's a place where ideas really happen and often trickle down Or like think about, and I think that this is becoming more and more important, what are people talking about in Silicon Valley or in tech spaces? Because that's another place where big ideas are happening and they're really having an effect on society, but it happens kind of quickly and silently. And unless you like point them out and talk about it, like suddenly there are, as there are now, in fact, little robots roaming the streets of D.C. And you're like, what? What is this? Where did this come from? So trying to uncover, you know, things that are happening in different corners and on different sides and bringing those into the public eye. Do you find yourself drawing connections between a lot of different things? Yes, but not. I don't want you to make it seem like you're like you've got a tinfoil cap and you're, you're <laughs> like, oh, yeah, the, the microwave uh, signals are, are somehow causing the, all of the cabs to, to back up and, and yeah, whatever. Well, I think I think with the solar eclipse that's happening. Um, no, not really like that. I do think that we are perhaps in a period of rapid like norm change and societal change i don't know the things that we the things that we hold as sacred are different the way that we are forming communities and thinking about what communities what do you mean they're different 
mean, just think about like how people believe, right? You know, if we used to organize society around, say, religion or around a belief in the free market or around a certain idea of gender, like you're increasingly seeing all of those things questioned. And what does that mean? And where are we going with that? It's unclear, but those changes are happening kind of in different ways in all different parts of society. So, you know, you see arguments about gender equality and feminism happening in academic spaces. And that's a, that's something. And then like last week, the Google memo, which was sort of about those same questions, but just in a different part of society. Yeah, I thought the the Google memo that was one of the first things that I read of yours that I that I really kind of like. Yeah, this is this is really interesting because there are a lot of different angles. I, I read many different things about that particular story, and I liked your take on it. Don't ask me to recall specifically what I liked <laughs> on it, uh, but you know, I, I feel like sometimes it used to be. I'm, I'm going to be the old white guy now. It used to be back in my day. You actually had time to think about things. Yes. And uh, that you could sort of stick with an idea before it and sort of like wear it around a little bit and get comfortable with it before you actually had to defend it or you had to sort of challenge it. And so it was easy to sort of get into these grooves of like, yeah, I believe this because this is what my group believes in or this is what my church believes in or the, the people in my office think. Mm-hmm. But things, ideas seem to be spinning so quickly now that I think we're all questioning uh, what we believe. And uh, certainly in the last week or so, we, we've we've seen things just spin and spin. Yeah. And it's, so it's difficult to think, I guess, I, I guess, and, and to come to sort of, you know, how do I put things in context anymore? And that, that's, mm-hmm. again, what, what, what's great about what you do is like the Google one in particular, I'm thinking of that, that there were a lot of different elements you sort of brought into that, that putting things into context. I think we're seeing a lot more journalism that's this sort of explainer journalism, mm-hmm. which is like super helpful when, yeah, you know, what does this term mean? You know, if you don't know what the term means and everybody's arguing or, and discussing it, you're at a disadvantage to sort of under, what they, understand what their perspective is and where they're coming from. So the more like journalism you can get like that, the more opinion writing you can get like that, is just only going to help people sort of put these things together so that they can actually have something they can believe in. Yeah, I, I sometimes jokingly describe myself as like the queen of the lukewarm take occasionally because I, in some ways I sort of, I really kind of what, what you were just saying, I really am, um, I think personally, I'm the sort of thinker who likes to sort of have an idea and be like, hmm, that's interesting and sort of like roll it around in my mind a little bit before like making a pronouncement about whether it's right or wrong or like how I disagree with it. And increasingly, I think a lot of our media is made up of just sort of like the hottest possible take. Like you read a thing and then you like form a split second opinion and then you shout it at someone. And I think that's sort of detrimental to our way of thinking and to the possibility of agreeing with other people. And when I tried to write a column, like this was something I was talking about with my editor when I was writing this Google memo uh, column, you know, I knew it was a topic that I was interested in. It touched a lot of the questions that I like to write about, but I had just a lot of thoughts. (laughs) It took me some time to be like, well, I'm going to, you know, write down like five of the top things I'm thinking about. What can I support with the evidence? Like, what is actually worth saying? How can I sort of form this into a column? And like, is what I'm saying about this helpful in any way before producing a column (laughs) about it? And so unlike a lot of people, I guess I didn't write about it the weekend that the memo came out. I wrote about it several days later. But I think 
being able to take that time to think about it and thinking about the best way to frame it, not just like I have an opinion, but also like what is valuable to share about my opinion made it a more worthwhile project for me. Yeah, when you look at things like cable news where the the measure of commentary is, you know, you know, here's somebody who's an expert in this particular field or or in this particular political philosophy, they bring them on whatever today's story is, ask their opinion, they go away, and we see them again the next time there's another type of story that has something to apply to them. It's not a lot of deep thinking, even though when they're off screen they may have they, they may put some actual thought into it. They may write something and they may talk about it, something else. The the thing uh, before you got here, I was just looking through social media and I don't know if it was I don't think it was the post. I think it might have been the, the New York Times. They had a an article about this is the day after Donald Trump sort of reneged on what he had said the previous day or on the Monday following the Charlottesville uh, incident uh, where he pretty much threw his money behind uh, uh, Nazis and alt-right and KKK people. And the focus of the story was, you know, here are all of these cable news anchors who are on the air as it is happening. And the story was about their immediate reaction. They do not have any thought into it. This is their honest take. And many of them responded in very unguarded ways. They you know, said, wow, or, you know, they shook their head or... Um, one a woman was described as, you know, one anchor was almost described as that she seemed ready to be to, to cry with sort of disgust. So it's a weird sort of thing. Yeah, we were talking about having the time to think, but what do you do when you have no time and you're out there? Um, so I hear you in saying, yes, I want to uh, have time to think these things through because they, they can be such big things. Who do you see as your audience when you're writing these things? Who is it you're you're trying to convince or trying to educate? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one that I don't, I would say I actually don't think about enough. Very broadly, I guess my audience is kind of whoever picks up the Washington Post when I have a column in it or whoever sort of clicks over to my article on the website. So in that sense, I try, though perhaps don't always succeed in like writing clearly so that like the average reader can like get the question. But I think that my writing is geared more towards people who are who are a little bit less less interested in, you know, kind of what I call the horse race and yeah, more interested in sort of like having a big think or like talking about the bigger ideas. Often sometimes I, I think I'm writing for people who are tired of reading about Donald Trump. But it, it really depends, honestly, column by column. I mean, there are columns that I've written about, you know, evangelicals uh, and how they interact with the administration. And, you know, I think the target audience there was probably religious people. But then I wrote a column about Harry Potter and millennials. <laughs> um, and the audience for that, I think, was millennials who are interested in Harry Potter, but also like older people who want to understand them and understand what this is. So really, depending on the topic, it varies. <laughs> Those dang millennials, again, yeah. with the millennials. It's funny. You know, I do this all the time that it surprises me when I get feedback or somebody says, because it never occurs to me when I'm writing sometimes that actually somebody is reading it. And so when somebody has a reaction, 
you know, a positive reaction, I find that surprising. They have a negative reaction. Well, those are, <laughs> yeah, they're idiots. They don't know what they're talking. But no, I mean, it's it's interesting to see what people see. And one of the things recently that you did, the Post has they have a feature, a video feature called Hate Mail, where they have their columnists and reporters read some of the the, the mail that they've gotten or email. Like, I can't. Did you get any letters? Uh, I do. Oh, I do good. sometimes get okay. letters. This is a more literate audience than most <laughs> that most of the people listen to the podcast. So. What is it, you know, what has the feedback been for your writing? What types of pe- things are people saying? It really varies. And it this is another one that really varies based on topic. And also, I think, based on where I'm getting the feedback from. So I'm on Twitter. So sometimes I get tweet or DM responses. I get a lot of emails, sometimes actual physical mail. I will say that often my physical mail is kind of the strangest, but... I would say there are maybe three main categories. There are people who like what I have to say, which is nice, and like, you know, thank me for writing something or say that they appreciate it. There are people who disagree with me and like want to, they write in, they're like, actually, I think you should have, you know, addressed this angle or I think you are mistaken in this. And that's helpful. And then there are people who just think I'm terrible. (laughs) Uh, and who write in and say that actually I'm the real racist, which uh, like a lot of that I think you saw in my hate mail video, especially when I write about topics of race. That is when I get a lot of somewhat unhinged mail. And actually, I think a, a minor fourth category that I really enjoy is emails from students. Because and I think this is one nice thing about writing about opinions, which can be more relevant over long periods of time and are interesting to more than just politicians is that like I found that some of my pieces get assigned in classes to like English lit classes or creative writing classes where they're like oh my teacher said that I had to find some opinion pieces and I found yours and like I really liked it or like I thought this was really interesting I'm in 11th grade in x school and I I find that really nice (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I could see how that would it would charge your batteries. It would sort of give you sort of hope that maybe, I hope that the, they're writing you because they got something out of it. Yeah, yeah, they actually often are, and it yes, it is really it is really nice to get, especially at certain time periods when I'm bogged down by other kinds of mail. So you you write about you write about diversity, you write about gender. Is this is a good time to write about those issues because it, it seemed to be so much going on. Not that there haven't been, you know, you know, race and diversity and gender issues going on for the last hundreds of years. But I think there's so much going on as far as the dialogue seems to be so out front. You know, what are your thoughts? It's definitely an interesting time to be writing about these topics just because more people are and there's more dialogue about it and thus there's more to discuss. I think in my my role as sort of an ideas person, as I said, kind of an explainer, I've find it really valuable sometimes to help people understand other points of view. I kind of think of that as a service, actually, and I think it's good for society to be able to empathize with somebody who's not like you or who you haven't, you know, thought about very much in other contexts. And if that's something that I can help with as sort of a translator at times, then I'm I'm glad to do it. But on the other on the other hand, I there is often also some kind of tiresome pushback. That happens. And I, you know, it's partially due, I think, to just polarization, but also sort of a resistance to how norms are changing around gender and diversity so quickly, where, you know, people 
will write to me and say, well, like, you're always writing about race. If you just, like, stopped writing about race, then, like, there wouldn't be racism. Like, you're making everything about race um, or you're making everything about gender or diversity. As if those things were never around before you began writing right, about them. Right, exactly. And they, you know, quote, they say that one quote, you know, the first thing that we need to do to make to end racism is to stop talking about race. Whereas my favorite quote on that subject is by Justice Blackman. And that's in order to get beyond racism, we have to, you know, first account for race <laughs> and acknowledge that it exists. And that involves talking about it. So that that can be a little bit overwhelming at times. Yeah, I could see the pushback would be sort of tiresome. You know, on the podcast, we, we've talked about diversity and, and gender off and on, not certainly not as much as we should. But it, it always surpri- it surprises me a lot the more and more as I see these stories and these incidents, you know, like Charlottesville sort of unfold. And just not so much the reaction of the far left or the far right, but the people who are somewhere in the middle and how they kind of react, sort of like the if you just stop writing about it, you know, people would, wouldn't care or, or it wouldn't be a problem. It's it's you talking about it, but not realizing, well, actually, you're kind of the people that, that need to be thinking about these things and asking these questions, not the not the extremes on either end. They're, they've kind of made their decision and they're going to go where they're <laughs> yeah. going to go. But it's the people in the middle who maybe to a certain extent need to wake up and sort of see where they fit in this whole, I don't know what this is, this whole mess that we're in. And sort of figure out what their roles are and what they what they believe in. Race in particular is a is a fraught topic in the U.S. and so is gender. I think also from the other side, it can be difficult when I don't know if you've talked about this on the podcast before, but often in a lot of sort of discussion and idea spaces, especially in college campuses and academia, there's sort of an intense call out culture too, where you know these topics have come to the fore and people begin to identify strongly with like one idea or another and also get like very offended if you don't use the right terminology or if you kind of step out of a certain ideological line on some question of gender or race and i i also think that that's bad too i think one of the most useful things that one can do is just be willing to have a conversation about it I think this is one of the things that I try to do in my work and also try to do when I'm like engaging with people. I have found myself especially recently getting into some like kind of drawn out Twitter arguments about these questions, but sort of assume good faith on the other side and be willing to like ask questions. And like if somebody makes a false assumption about you or what you believe, like correct it, but like, yeah, do it in in a sort of service-based way, I guess. Like, I'm explaining this thing to help you. I'm trying to understand your side. Maybe both of us are wrong. Maybe there are different ways to look at it, but, like, it's just a valuable thing to have this conversation. So it doesn't have to be off-limits on either end. And I think that's a little bit difficult for a lot of people because it does touch on, like, very personal questions and, you know, questions about identity and who you are. But sometimes that has to be done. Yes, sometimes it has to be done. It gets, it gets so personal. I know that uh, we had a podcast about a year and a half ago. Baynard Woods, who was on recently, he he was a he's a reporter for the Baltimore City Paper. We had him in recently talking about a podcast that he do, he does covering the the White House. And uh, the first one we, he was in, and we were talking about the uh, the Baltimore uprisings. Mm-hmm. You see, I use uprisings as opposed to riots. I started the conversation by saying riots, and he said no. The idea is that it's it's really an uprising. It's it's a group of people not causing violence, not 
not out there to destroy, but to actually protest a particular wrong that they felt. So then we get into this really big conversation about words and what they, you know, Mm -hmm. how important they are into sort of, you know, if you use the wrong type of word to describe something, then, you know, because we're wordsmiths, one of the things we're supposed to be doing is choosing our words well, so that sometimes we use words that seem very easy or seem to fit, but they actually condone a a point of view Mm -hmm. that may, I don't know, either signal out to other people that you're really not in, in the know or just maybe present a message that you don't want to get out there. And you can drive yourself insane trying to figure out what the right words <laughs> yeah, are to totally. say and so that you're not going to offend someone because someone was going to call you out. But I think it is important to exchange those ideas, to be able to communicate with people and respect their opinions and, and you know, try to find that common ground. I think, you know, going back to the whole horse race thing, this idea that you know, there's a left and there's a right and, the, and there's this if you believe one thing, you have to you, you have to stand over here and you have to stand over here if you believe the other thing that. And the whole idea of our country, democracy, is the idea that we're supposed to find some sort of common ground. You know, now that we're in a, in a society with our with our news system that, that, that so much feeds this dichotomy between the two sides, that, that if we don't build these bridges to try to find some common ground to explore these bigger ideas, that we're going to be in really bad shape. Probably worse shape than we are now. I don't know. That's not really a question. That's just sort of, <laughs> I get, I get these things. I say things sometimes that I forget to ask questions. No, I think, I think I know what you mean. And I think that one of the things that I find particularly important about opinion writing and journalism in general is the idea of trying to understand the other side, even if you disagree with them, because if you know what the other side is talking about, then you can talk to them about it or you know where someone is coming from and so you like better understand what arguments need to be made or where the confusion is like actually i think in my journalistic and non-journalistic background that has been something that has come in handy for me so i went to princeton i'm african-american my parents were nigerian immigrants I have worked like the new criterion which is the magazine i was at before i was at the washington post was extremely conservative and i would not say that I'm I'm not an extreme conservative in any sense of the word. And now I'm at The Post, which is by far like more centrist and moderate. Well, um, some people might say a little. So, some people might say it's <laughs> it's the biased liberal media as well. And but I also, you know, work with people who and read people who write for leftist, pub, like extremely leftist publications. But kind of having an understanding of both sides, just like, oh, well, I've I know conservatives. I've talked to them. I have I read their magazines. So like. This is what they're talking about. And these are the issues that they think are important. And then on the left, like, oh, well, these are the issues that they think are important. If you bring both of them to the table, you can kind of address both sides as opposed to sort of staying on one side and conjecturing about what you think is important to someone else without actually knowing. Just reading a magazine, just reading something from the other side does not condone it or mean that you agree with it, but it does make you better informed. And being able to share both sides or to, you know, bring both sides to the table is useful. I will say, though, that especially this week, we are seeing the failure of a particular kind of many-sided journalism. There's a difference between hearing and understanding different viewpoints and weighing two viewpoints in the same way. So frighteningly, and this is a practice that's like, I think, not great for my own mental health sometimes. But like I have occasionally dipped a toe into like white nationalist websites and writing because like I want to know how they think and what they're thinking about. And so like the motivations are there if you want to read them. 
And that's helpful to, to just understand what's going on. But that's not the same as saying they're justified. You know, like things can be wrong and we should be able to say that. But also knowing what the wrong things are that are percolating in different parts of our environment is really important for combating them. So we have to be open to that. Yeah. See, that's the other that's the other revelatory thing. And I've had a couple of conversations over the last week about the things that went on in Charlottesville of people talking to their family members who had very different takes mm-hmm. um, yeah. than, you know, that we in a newsroom in Washington, D.C. had about, well, see, you know, maybe the, now you know how we feel when Barack Obama was president. <laughs> so and it's like, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. really? So. uh America. America. It's awesome. America. So now we're all we're all in this together. Yep, we all it's, are it's here. not it's not, you know, one side against the other, one of us is gonna win. No, we're all in this together. We're all in this this thing. I'm gonna tell you a really stupid story <laughs> and then we're gonna wrap this up. When I was uh, at the Connection newspapers in Northern Virginia during the two thousand eight elections, I got a phone call like the week before the election from this woman in the Burke area. And she said, can you send a photographer out to the polls on Tuesday? Because the Girl Scouts are going to be there. They're going to be selling cookies to the polls to raise money. I said, oh, that's cool. Yeah, maybe we'll do that. You know, it's a way to get the community and everything. They're selling baked goods, but they're going to do like a political theme. Like Mm. they're going to have Barack Obama brownies. (laughs) And she said that. Mm. And something inside me just shrank. (laughs) And I was just like. So I went over to this friend of mine who was in production who was an African-American man. And I told him this story and I, I just looked at him and I said, it's all about race, isn't it? And he looked at me and he said, yeah, it's all, it's all and always about race. It made me very sad in many ways. But then again, you said it, this is America. But you know, also, I don't know that it is all about race okay. sometimes. Please. Yes. Tell me, <laughs> tell me, save well, me from this terrible story that has haunted me for so long. <laughs> Yeah, I see that. Like, this is one of the, this is one of the, <laughs> your, mind. Your, your eyes are so fake. Like, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, no, I think this is like one of those circumstances in which maybe it is really helpful to try and see things from different sides and perhaps intervene. So like what you you see, this is like being about race. And maybe they don't see it. Maybe it was just well, like no, some Girl Scouts who were like, oh, Barack oh, Obama brownies. She didn't say it as a joke. Yeah, I no, feel like really not that funny. that's a situation where you have to be like, mm, have you thought this? Have you thought this through? <laughs> yeah. No, no. Yeah. I, uh, mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. My very strange, strange story. Oh, like I said, I've been haunted by it for years, <laughs> but we're going to move on. This is uh, this has been very fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for this conversation. No um, problem. So people can find your column. What days and where? Yeah. Um, and blog, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes I'm a bit of a floater. Usually I have a column in the post on Saturday or Sunday. And I am always on Twitter and sharing my columns on Twitter. And my Twitter is just my name, at Christine Emba. And I'm also on Facebook. But yeah, just the Washington Post opinions page. That's, that's where you'll find me. Thanks for coming in, Christine. Thanks for having me. Next time on It's All Journalism. Um, so I think everyone needs to, at the very least you know, check their biases, take a pause, don't share anything until they've checked it out and to look for the signs of of credibility uh, and to, you know, be willing to admit if they shared something incorrect to go back and 
take it down and and send something out to their friends and family that says I, I made a mistake. I shared something that wasn't right, and here's what I learned from it. Join me next week when we talk to Peter Adams, Senior Vice President for Education Programs at the News Literacy Project. We talk about fake news and how schools are educating students to be more news literate. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can pre-order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time for you to start podcasting? While you're on the website, leave a comment or send us an email at editor at itsalljournalism.com. We're always looking for new guests and topics for the podcast. We'd also like to get feedback on how we can make the podcast a better experience for you. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at All Journalism, or you can just look for us on Facebook. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.